Welcome to Important Not Important. My name is Quinn Emmett. And I'm Brian Colbert Kennedy. This is the podcast where we give you the tools that you need to fight for a better future for everyone. The context straight from the smartest people on earth and the action steps that you can take to support them. That's right. Our guests, oh man, they are scientists, doctors, nurses, journalists, Brian, engineers, farmers, politicians, activists, educators, business leaders, a- astronauts. We even had a reverend. Um, can I can I be a guest once? Once, sure. Yeah, we'll do Great. that once. Great. This is your friendly reminder. You can send questions, thoughts, and feedback to us on Twitter at importantnotimp, or you can email us at funtalk at importantnotimportant.com. You can also join tens of thousands of other smart people and subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. That's right. Uh, the week's uh, all the science news you missed paired with specific action steps. Again, that's our thing you can take uh, to kick some ass out there. Brian, on this week's episode, we asked, are we finally able to upgrade our microbiome? Also, what's a microbiome? Also, why does it need upgrading? I'll take an upgrade. Yeah, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you will. And who better to chat with us about this than our mm-hmm. guest today? Mm-hmm. He explains it all. He provides some tips and tools that you can take, uh, and his name is Rajadir. Rajadir, that's right. Uh, Rajadir uh, is the uh, co-founder of, of Seed Health, and uh, we had a real blast talking with this fella, um, and I feel enlightened now. So, pretty good. Pretty good. Pretty good Friday. Pretty good Friday. All right, guys. I- enjoy this conversation, and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Our guest today is Raja Deer, and together we're going to ask how humans can finally start upgrading their microbiome. Uh, Raja, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. So for yeah, sure, this is going to sure, be man. awesome. I think very excited to have you, um, uh, Raja. Just just uh, get us going by tell every, telling everybody who, who you are and what you do. Yeah, sure. So I'm the co-founder and co-CEO of a microbial sciences company called Seed Health. Uh, and we, my co-founder and I founded Seed Health in 2015 at a time when uh, the microbiome, which is the collection of organisms, microorganisms that live in and on the human body, uh, was really heating up as a field in, in science. Um, I would probably say that there's been no field that's gotten as much enthusiasm or, or hype in recent years, it's 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 kind of very similar to when the genetics and genomics revolution in the early 2000s came around, um, and we sequenced the first human genome and kind of unlocked that the role that our DNA plays in in our in our overall health. The microbiome really kind of followed in that suit, and at the time, there really were no serious companies that were championing microbes across a very wide range of applications, and so. Kind of on the one hand, you had some of these synthetic biology companies that were using microbes to tinker around, make fragrances, try to synthesize new drugs, you know, replace uh, common additives in food and, you know, kind of these big microbial ingredient companies. And then on the other side, you had, uh, of course, like, you know, a very, very poor, poorly regulated kind of probiotics consumer industry. And then a few co- companies that were saying, well, hey, maybe we can make new drugs, but it's going to take us 10 years. And so let's get started, raise a lot of money um, and hope we get lucky. Our idea at that time was kind of ba- based around this, what we call a foundry model, which was 
Look, no real breakthrough in a field that's moving as fast and as dynamic as the microbiome is going to happen within, you know, the four walls of any one company or even any one academic lab for that matter. And so we kind of put together this foundry model where we built companies with leading scientists as co-founders within those companies um, focused on their particular area of domain expertise. And so uh, we have one in, in women's health on the vaginal microbiome. We have one in uh, consumer health on di- gastrointestinal benefits for consumer probiotics. We have one uh, that we haven't fully announced yet, but it's um, working on 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 making uh, cancer drugs better. So, uh, you know, it's it's really like this broad tapestry now that spans gastroenterology, immunology, neurology, and then of course these really radical new applications for uh, personal hygiene, things like the like how you brush your teeth. Uh, what you put mm-hmm. on your skin, what you feed your infant, all of these areas are really going to be disrupted by microbial sciences in the next, sure. I would say, 20 years. And so that's kind of our, our area of, of work and thesis of the company. I love it, man. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, well, that's really where we're focused. I mean, I, I think we all love sci-fi stuff, but you know what we try to uh, try to harp in on here is is the things that are affecting everyone now, or you know, in the next ten years or so. And and like you said, uh, you know, we we sequence sequ- uh, sequence the the genome, and that's become more broadly available and and cheaper and faster. And uh, how what that is uh, what that means is as it's applicable to you know, to biotech and things like that. And then, uh, you know, like you said, digging into the microbiome here and, and how much we've discovered and yet how much we've also discovered uh, uh, on on the scope of how far we have to go uh, and how much we don't know is uh, going to be really, really fascinating here. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into that today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's 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 do that. Um, we're gonna, uh, Raja. We're gonna uh, provide some some quick context uh, for for our sort of our topic, our question today, and then uh, and then we're gonna get into some action oriented questions um, and and actions that that everybody out there can do to uh, to to help support. Sound good? Let's do it. Awesome, uh, Raja. We do like to start with one important question. Uh, it doesn't have to be too terribly long, but should be uh, honest. Something to tet- set the tone a little <laughs> bit. Uh, it's fun, uh, Raja. Instead of saying "tell us your entire life story," we like to ask, "Why are you vital to the survival of the species?" I, I'm going to answer it a little with a contrarian answer, which is, I actually do not think that I'm vital to the survival of the species, nor do I think that any human is, nor do I think that humans as a species should be privileged over any other species. So, um, in fact, I think that that speciesism, 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 I don't know if that's a real word. I like uh, them both. Oh, let's go with it. Is a, is a, uh, rate limiting step in our advancement as a civilization. And, um, you know, part of what we, as a microbial sciences company really anchor into is this idea of ecology and, and ecological systems and networks. It's the basis of most of the technologies that we work in or develop. And mm-hmm. when you look at an ecology, you really see, I mean, I'm not the first to propose these ideas. It was actually Alexander von Humboldt back in the early eighteen, early to mid-1800s, who was a big inspiration for Darwin, that kind of pioneered this idea of ecosystems being interconnected um, and, and highly dependent on one another. It's, of course, something that we, that we take for granted now because we can see the ripple effects when you, you know, pull at one thread what happens elsewhere. Uh, combined sure. with our pretty, I would say, hands-on role in shaping the the environment around us. 
but really, I mean, my, my, my point is that I think that to, to advance the survival of our species, we have to uh, deconstruct our role at the top of it. So it's a strange, an- it's a, it's a strange answer, but I would, uh, I, I would answer it with a bit of humility, I guess. No, uh, I think that's fantastic. I mean, it's, it's totally true. And that's why, you know, we, we like, uh, you know, we work hard to have people on the, look, this could easily be one of the shows that has a bunch of like famous corporate white guys on it. And, and I endeavor not to do that. Uh, we try to find, uh, folks who are out on the front line doing the things and thankfully, thankfully for everyone. Um, and, and for our benefit here, you know, it's a very diverse crowd, uh, and often, uh, not the biggest names. And, and so, you know, we use that question as a way for, uh, you know, people to be bold, to talk about why they feel like what they're doing today. Um, but I, I, I love and, you know, fully agree with the contrarian take that you know, the, the longer we were, we, we, we exclusively prioritize our ourselves as a species, the deeper the hole we're going to dig here clearly. And that goes as far as all these, uh, you know, external ecosystems that, uh, we've, we've spent the past, at least the past hundred years, uh, completely demolishing, but also, uh, the type of, uh, ecosystems we're going to talk about today, the very, very tiny ones. So, uh, let's just do some really simple context around that because as we, our listeners know, uh, a lot of them, well, they're usually probably texting and driving or something of that sort, probably not doing as much of that these days because they're locked at home, but probably dealing with their children or something. So sort of lowest common denominator stuff. So, what is uh, bacteria, right? They're very small, uh, microscopic, uh, single-celled organisms. Um, they are basically as old as time. Uh, they're incredibly adaptable, and they live uh, everywhere. Uh, as far as we know now, you know, they make up half of your sort of body space inside and out. They turn milk into yogurt. They digest our food. They fill the oceans. They are the things that live in healthy soil, h- helping to grow our food and suck down carbon. And, and historically, uh, they are uh, something we've been, uh, you know, progressively from negligent to massively misunderstood to something we're really excited about. Um, there has been a recent push to explore uh, how to understand them, how to improve our own microbiome, um, uh, mostly focused on the gut. And um, it's been a very interesting, curvy road, uh, to say the least. So I'm really excited to to dig into this and to ask, you know, can can humans, can each of us finally start to quote unquote upgrade, uh, our microbiome with, with actual science, not just, uh, you know, snake oil and, uh, Ooh, what, snake oil. what, the, what that really means. No, Brian, snake oil is not oh, good. It's bad. Remember? Right. Yep. 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 Uh, so Raja, I, 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 I feel like I can safely venture to, to say that for the majority of us, even our nerdy listeners who are nerds and scientists and engineers and all that, and regular people, um, our, our best understanding, our, our most base understanding of the microbiome is in taking antibiotics, you know, once a year or so for some sort of infection, hopefully something relatively harmless. Uh, but they do seem to be, and, and troublingly have been the default answer to, to a default case, right? Rogue bacteria m- making it sick. And, and that goes all the way back to, uh, Van Leeuwenhoek and Pasteur and Lister. Um, but that's not the full story, obviously of, of what we're talking about. And there's been a lot of really interesting conflicting ideas in science. And you hinted in our offline conversation a week ago or so uh, about how your experience uh, as a debater uh, has let you have this ability to form and hold these competing ideas in your head and to be able to justify both. Um, And I'm curious how that enables you uh, 
uh, now in 2020 and, and, in, and in sort of operating this, this sort of holding company idea of, of new, new concepts and new trials to try and understand and operate in this very complex world of, of microbiomes. I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit and why it might be an advantage. Well, it's a it's it's kind of a paradox, right? So debate te- debate and my extensive background in it, I, I've joked before, kind of can make you a bit of a um, you know a patholo- a bit pathological uh, because <laughs> you you can argue the same thing from both sides equally persuasively, and that kind of makes you a a, a crazy person because uh-huh. um, it's it's a uh, you know most people are brought up like forming their opinions of the world, engaging with the external environment, building their, their thesis and how they want to engage, uh, you know, developing these things called morals and just kind of trying their best to stick to it. And, and in some ways, I really envy that kind of simplicity, not because I, I think that it's, uh, you know, ignorantly bliss or uh, anything like that, but it's just mm-hmm. the mental gymnastics, once you've, uh, like, I would I should say, unlocked your ability to to deploy reason in such a targeted way, the mental gymnastics that you're playing with yourself each and every day are, are quite frankly, ex- both exhilarating and exhausting and, and make it even more challenging to try to build a science company because the scientific method at its core is essentially observation without attachment to outcome. Whereas uh, debate is quite literally the opposite, which is build your hypothesis mm. and thesis first and then manipulate information to, uh, advocate for that point. So, um, hmm. really there's been a, 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 actually, I would say not much of an advantage, but actually a lot more of a, of a rounding out, I should say. And, and typically the types of people that excel in debate go on to do, you know, uh, politics or law, um, hmm. or I, I do know some people that were also equally competitive and in, in kind of the top three or top five with me when I was competing, uh, that did go on to medicine and, and did great, but that's really the anomaly, right? So mostly advocacy becomes a a lens through which you see the world, and it really helps. It really helps in social issues, for example. So like the ability to like you know surface issues that might be overlooked by society at whole and and put some gravitas or weight into them um, is a great skill from debate. But but really, when it's come to the microbiome when it's come to building this type of a company uh debate has served me probably most importantly and i would say what one way comes to mind which is to build a company with the best you have to convince the best that the idea is worth building and oftentimes mm-hmm. you have uh aggressive competition and so for all of these all of the scientists that we work with that we've built our companies with i mean there's they really are the best in their field and so probably dozens uh, including a handful of the top venture funds or what's called now these venture, uh, you know, factories or creation, um, uh, f- creation uh, incubators, whatever you want to call them. The, the model for biotech mm-hmm. is now really uh, going so far upstream where, um, you know, like the top funds, like the flagships and the arches, like they, fi- they want to find a, r- a radical piece of science, ask a couple crazy questions and then build the company from the ground up because, um, that's where you can you can realize most of the value, and so um, it's it's highly competitive, particularly when you're relatively young in your 30s. You know, you don't necessarily have five or ten uh, companies that have gone public under your belt yet, and it, you know, it it really comes down to how how well you can sell an idea of the future without uh, blowing air. Because one thing that scientists are really sensitive to is uh, you know, kind of like 
uh, verbiage or like vacuous, um, mm. you know, vacuous and, and devoid of sure. s- substance uh, thoughts. So um, I would say that probably that's, that's the aspect where debate, uh, debate has, has really helped in kind of, quote, selling the dream. Um, but then of course that's just your, that's just your foot in the door. If you don't get good clinical data or you don't go raise the right amount of capital or hit your early development milestones, then, um, you've, uh, you know, introduced a lot of issues into into your future plans. Sure. sure. And that's, what's great about, uh, if you, I mean, it seems insane to some people, uh, and, and clearly not what we're dealing with at the moment, but that's, what's great about building, the fundamentals of a, of a company and its outcomes around, uh, the, the, the actual around science and the scientific method, which is, um, you know, like you said, you can, you can use debate to, to sell it one way or the other over and over again. Um, but, uh, and I, and I give that, yeah. And I give that advice to entrepreneurs all the time, which is don't, I'm, I'm, I'm very hesitant when people are overly protective about their ideas because, uh, the the value that you get from pressure testing your idea against the best in the field so far outweighs the risk of quote theft or you know like it's it's not about your it's so much of its execution dependent and people dependent and everyone should jump at the opportunity to pressure if if the people that are experts in the area that you want to make an impact in aren't really fully sold into the idea that's totally fine but go, go, then go and do the work so that when you come back to them next time they are. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. It, it, and that applies to everything. I mean, my day job is, is screenwriting in Los Angeles and everyone's, they'll, you know, usually n- newer writers will get, you know, very excitable about, Oh, I had this idea. And then I heard someone else talking about it as a friend of a friend. And did they steal it? And this and this, it's like, well, you got to execute it. You know, you got to go out there and execute it. And you, the, the best thing to do is, talk to 10 people about it. You can't be worried about them stealing it because if, if nine out of 10 people are just like, eh, it's not worth it, or that's been done or that didn't make whatever it is, uh, you know, it's, there's no point in spending all this time on or worrying about who's stealing it. And if, by the way, if someone's stealing it, it's probably a good idea. Uh, so get out there and, and, and do something about it. And like you said, start pressure testing and pressure test yourself first, which is like, are you the one capable of executing this thing? What are the assets you need? What are the people you need on your team? Yeah. Um, and I think that can make a big difference. I um, actually had I wanna, the idea for Terminator before whoever did Terminator did. You, you, you weren't even born. Buddy. Oh, <laughs> um, yep. Um, uh, Raja, again, coming back to, and I feel like these podcasts get nerdier and nerdier the deeper I dive into this stuff, but but I do really enjoy it. I want to uh, talk a little bit about um, like first principles and, and systems thinking. Yeah. Um, and it's it's rapidly becoming, you know, just sort of fundamental building blocks of how I consider, consider everything from uh, how I raise my children in COVID to how I conduct these things. But it's something I'm always endeavoring to understand better, and it, and it matters so much today, right? If you're, again, trying to think as objectively as you can about systems thinking, and that can be climate inputs, um, global trade, the markets, COVID, uh, but, you know, especially back bacteria, right? Fr- from my, again, very limited understanding, we, we uh, science, has, has come to understand that the bacteria that are in and around and on our bodies seemingly are... I, I don't want to sell this too far, but kind of in control of the whole shebang. Uh, is is that incorrect? Yeah. I, so, you know, in control, c- control, the direction I, yeah, of the control can, is a little, we can, we can expand upon that, but what we yeah, can, what, what, what we do know 
is that bacteria are intimately involved in virtually every major organ system in the body. And from the second we come through the birth canal, right? I mean, there's even been studies on that about what the mother passes to the baby. That's your first dose. Yeah, it's you get it's that's actually called that process of the first microbial uh, vertical transmission from mother to child is called seeding, uh, which was the inspiration of our um, of our name as a company. So <laughs> it's uh, absolutely I mean, and I would argue even more important in those early developmental windows than what you would see after kind of the either the microbiome or the host has reached what's called steady state. So kind of, you know, matured or the immune system has developed. A, a lot of these experiments, they look at what happens during that period of time. And, and some of the experiments have even gone so far as to show that a single course of antibiotics, or even more interesting to me, is a low fiber diet after mm. three generations of a uh, animal child, animal child, animal child in a in a in a mam mammal study in a in a mouse model, um, you show that you have a mass extinction uh, and a die off of organisms that were originally present in the great grandmother in that experiment. Uh, so wow. that to, to to me that's really that that work was done by Justin Sonnenberg out of out of Stanford, and um, he does really elegant uh, you know diet at the intersection of microbiome type of studies. But, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's not just what you would think is, is right on the nose, like antibiotics, even lifestyle and diet can affect your, my, your gut microbiome uh, and affect the microbiota of your offspring. Yeah, and, and, and that's what I, I would love to dig into a little bit because, again, the more we're finding out the things that we put into our bodies and where we live and the 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 air we breathe and the water we drink and the and the drugs we take, they're affecting these clearly highly complex systems uh, that we're only beginning to understand. So I'd love if you could talk a little bit about as you're developing new ways of improving or, or modifying on or protecting this, this ecosystem that each of us have inside of us and they're all vastly different. And like Ed Young said, I mean, you know, it's like you, you have a uh, you know the 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 bacteria on your left hand is so different from the bacteria on your right hand. Um, it's 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 fascinating to me. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you consider that system and all the levers and the inputs uh, as you're again sort of developing these new ways of of considering it and, and what you can do to evolve it. So I'll I'll draw a parallel between the human microbiome and actually classic ecology, which is that you know if you think about kind of species loss or habitat loss or deforestation, whichever, or, you know, uh, pollution or carbon emission, I mean, whichever aspect of environmental science you want to look at, I would say that today, um, and certainly when we first, when environmental science first really came online, our approach was kind of a little bit along the lines of what you'd say called the precautionary principle, which is we don't know the extent of our impact. And so we should err on the side of of caution, of conservation. We shouldn't let species go out. We shouldn't allow for, uh, you know, terminal lineages of, of specific species. We shouldn't impact the biodiversity of um, isolated ecosystems until we know the role that, you know, which animals and uh, participants in any single ecosystem play a critical role. And from, the, you know, and then kind of like, if you think of it as a spectrum, that approach from conservation can go as far as to more active approaches like 
um, ecosystem engineering or de-extinction, uh, both areas that I work on uh, a little uh, academically and with and with collaborators. So with the human microbiome right now, we really are very much are in this kind of uh, you know the field started by looking at what's called the ancestral microbiome. You're looking at hunter gatherers. You're looking at uh, groups that have never been in contact with Western lifestyle, with modern living, with modern drugs, with uh, hospital hospital births, like the whole mm-hmm. the whole process of modernization. And sure. you know, and I, I can see the attraction to it, you know, and it's even gone so far in some of uh, some of Ed Young's books and and even others to say things like, you know, well, let them eat dirt and you know, let them go out into the wild and this glorification of the ancestral microbiome. And in general, I agree that that's a good thing. We should be diversity of your gut microbiome across every single marker is, is associated with markers of health, regardless mm-hmm. of the outcome that you're looking at. Um, except mm-hmm. one could argue very, very late in life in very specific, you know, conditions like Parkinson's, we might see that be a, a sign that there's some, some dysfunction because all organisms are now permitted to live. But for the most part, we can say diversity equals healthy microbiome. It's resilient. It has functional redundancy. Um, you know, it, it's not overrun by any opportunistic organisms. So that's kind of our approach. And again, I, I, I think it's a bit of an oversimplification. So, you know, like if, if I've looked at the microbiome of the Hadza, Hadza uh, tribesmen and of the Venezuelan Amerindians and um, you couldn't pay me to take half of the organisms that are in there because, quite frankly, um, I didn't co-evolve with them. I didn't, I, you know, they mm-hmm. weren't with me from the earliest stages. And we actually don't know just because they're there um, and they predated us that therefore they're good. And so, you know, the wave's kind of going back and forth, which is the first is saying, like, everything should exist and look how far we've been removed from our ancestral microbial communities. And then the other side saying, well, we don't need a lot of those organisms to live in a modern world. Um, and in fact, some of them actually could be uh, dangerous later in life or could, or could be opportunistic. And so I don't want to say it's as simple as uh, more organisms are good, uh, but certainly this idea of looking at the organisms together, whether you look at it from an ancestral microbiome or whether you look at it from a modern microbiome, the idea that they all work together as an ecosystem certainly rings true. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that thinking about it. And and it, I do think it's important to step back. And like you said, uh, just because, uh, yes, like taking on principle that we, we have clearly um, in, in the Western diet and Western environments uh, done so much to to dis- destroy the diversity uh, in the ecosystem that we have evolved with. Um, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't take some time to really study in those folks uh, that still have a, a much more diverse uh, microbiome, uh, w- what's going on in there? Because, like you said, uh, you don't want to just drop that into the into the melting pot without yeah. having any idea what's really going and, on. And, and I and I can give you a couple of examples. So you know, it's uh, again like the, the the kind of pop side version of it is like oh, ancestral microbiome, or uh, you know, kind of like it taps into these these undercurrents that like. Which is why, like uh, the paleo diet, is so intuitively attractive for people because it just feels because it's more how we evolved. It feels like it should be more right. It just taps into this sure. kind of like you know deep, deep drive or desire or distrust of modernity. But that's not the way that this field really, in it, in its highest form, 
really thrives. And so, for example, in our in our women's health company, in 2004, the founder and chief scientist Jacques Revel started to characterize the microorganisms that live in various ecosystems, gynecologically, obstetrically, and then you know a little bit in terms of what's transmitted from mother to a child. And for 10 years, gathered data on hundreds and hundreds of women and, and, and followed them over time to first establish that baseline of like, let's say, let's say what's there, let's map the genes, let's build a gene mm-hmm. catalog and library. And then, you know, after that, then you say, well, what are some features from all this big data that are important and valuable? And you really need so much data that you can start to say, well, these genes or these alleles are associated with stability or these alleles are associated with not having um, you know outcomes like UTI or uh, mm-hmm. a BV or a preterm birth or infertility and you know the list goes on and on, and then from there you start to probe and and, and build a hypothesis and say well these cluster these organisms or these network of bacteria together based on their genomics based on their transcriptomics based on the functions that they serve look like they could be should be really important and then you try to reconstitute or uh, grow culture back out and grow and build this ecology of organisms that you then transplant back in. And so every time you see like a single p- people marketing, like a single organism or a single probiotic, it's, it's really mm-hmm. challenging, challenging for me to believe that those endpoints are, are, are valid because we know that how, how much of these things they work together or they work with overlapping and, and, you know, redundant mechanisms that are really important. So, you know, another example is, um, you know, starting to look at bacteria in the gut for so in our other company that's being built with Caltech, you know, for li- literally 20 years, they've just been studying one bacteria and have ju- and, and in the last three to five years have uncovered uh, the part or the components of these organisms um, that make it interact and, and talk in air quotes with the immune system, right? So mm-hmm. when you're mm-hmm. thinking, it, it's not just you, you. Really have to think a lot, a lot deeper about this stuff. Other than, oh, if I just take, you know, this, then it'll be good for my immune system. Th- these these things are highly complex, uh, network driven uh, responses in the body. And so the, the the main takeaway that I have there is is your research should be dr- driven and designed to answer the research questions that you ask. And so I'll give you one exa- another right. example. So we built a consumer probiotic, which is uh, 24 different strains of bacteria that, that are all coexisting together in a single uh, capsule. And mm-hmm. the research, some of the research questions that we asked early on were, well, what are, is it, are there organisms that we can ingest which prophylactically or, or preventively um, engage in really validated ways across a ton of different mechanisms with the body that improve health. And so the question right. is, well, what are, what are those mechanisms? There's your, there's your digestive functions. You should have, I mean, things like normalization of bowel movements, uh, intestinal transit time, stool consistency, bloating. I mean, the number of side effects or of, uh, of quality of life index markers that are associated with your digestive system are are quite vast, right? And so sure. 300 person trial on that for two of our, our dominant strains. Um, and then you, it, it goes on, we have bacteria that make micronutrients that synthesize vitamins. We have bacteria which uh, signal through the gut skin axis. Uh, we have bacteria which um, are involved in cholesterol reuptake. 
um, to, for, for your uh, cardiovascular panel and, your, and to maintain your lipids. And, and this is all really right. deep, deep mechanistic science, right? Like this works through, through creating an enzyme called bile salt hydrolase as an example. And now we're actually probing this cocktail in some even more novel research questions. For example, what happens after you take antibiotics? And we got the uh, initial data back and it, we found that our cocktail actually it results in the production of a very, very valuable metabolite called butyrate way faster than not only just spontaneous recovery, but way more than the original host before they even took the antibiotics. And so hmm. it's this kind of like res rescue effect. And in another area that we probed this uh, research question was around other things which can be destructive to your microbiome. And so of, of naturally when, when looking at, at what all those things can be. They can be poor sleep. They can be non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. They can actually be very, very uh, aggressive, um, high-intensity interval training exercise. They can be alcohol. And so mm -hmm. we, we naturally zeroed in on everybody's favorite drug and designed the experiment to say, well, what happens? Does alcohol consumption have an effect on your microbiota and your host cells and your intestinal sure. cells? And can we rescue or attenuate some of those side effects. And we saw the exact same thing. We saw that it uh, rescues intestinal cells. We saw that it uh, results in a faster recovery of the microbial communities. And we saw that it, again, starts to uh, catalyze the production of some of these metabolites that are really important. Um, so important that actually your human cells use these bacterial metabolites as a primary energy source more than energy that you ingest from food. So uh, a very right. intimate crosstalk between these cells and your bacteria. And so um, I'll pause there, but these are the types of research yep. experiments that, that I, I think you know, are really, really interesting to validate some of these uh, applications for bacteria. No, I, I think it's great. And thank you for, for speaking so broadly on that. And But that's like, that, that is the point that I feel like I endeavor in, in every conversation I have, whether we publish it or it's a private one or online or whatever it might be, or with loved ones, which is to, uh, you, you used, uh, you referenced mechanics, uh, which is, you know, essentially uh, without the literal definition, um, how, how things, how things work and they do not work, uh, or at least they do not do the full scope of their work in isolation. And again, that comes back to the market or climate levers, or bacteria. Yeah. You can't, I mean, this is what, this is the problem with so many of these dietary studies that, you know, you'll see on CNN.com or something, sorry, CNN, it'll say, uh, I use this example in, in another conversation uh, this week, which was, you know, one day it'll be vitamin E will extend your life two years, and then the next day, another peer-reviewed study, vitamin E will will give you, a, you know, a heart condition, and it's, it's just like, yes, but that's that that but that's just that is such a simple ignorant way of looking at this and 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 when you don't consider everything uh, when you don't consider all of the levers because this is such a comprehensive connected world yeah. and so is the world of bacteria um you are doing more damage than if you'd otherwise just uh left it alone and so um yeah I mean, those, it's, those it's, things it's a bit are of, so it, important yeah 100% but it's a bit of a chicken and an egg because um, there really is no good way to design a diet study unless you can capture everybody and put them all in a ward together and control everything. And oh, for sure. You, you know, you know, it's for a certain oh, period, for sure. For for some, again, it, one takeaway I want people to have here is the study must be designed to answer the research question that that you that you ask. And so, 
for something sure. with a short time horizon, like does a high fat diet, uh, increase your blood cholesterol levels? Yeah, you can. And, and that's exactly how they, this association between dietary fat and even also dietary carbohydrates, both have been shown to impact your, uh, your cardiovascular health through the production of, uh, low density lipoproteins and very low density lipoproteins. Um, you know, but, but you can do that because after a month or two months of altering someone's behavior, you can start to see a change. But in these, the, 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 the diet studies that kill me are the ones that come out and say, uh, this and this decreases or increases your risk of, or, or like vitamins do nothing. And then you look at the study and it was a study that didn't control for anything on people that started taking a Centrum vitamin like 20 years ago or 30 years ago and looked at how many people that took the vitamin had more all-cause mortality than people that, that didn't. And it's just, there's so right. many other things at play, uh, at play there that I would, I would consider that data such low quality that you should just let it go. I mean, you, you, you know, like if you can find a good mechanism then you can impute that vitamin E or vitamin D or whatever it might be um, is sure. involved in a certain biological process, and we just have to leave it there. And and both sides are guilty. The um, you know micronutrient or the dietary naysayers they say, oh, vitamins have been shown to do absolutely nothing based off of this horrible study design. And then the right. evangelists they'll look at a small controlled study or cherry pick a little bit of data and be like, of course you should take vitamin D three. It's involved in you know hormone as a, as a pro hormone for this 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 and this and you know, everyone needs to, I think that, sure. that people could very, it, it, the, the whole, uh, diet has become a, has become politicized and weaponized and it really shouldn't be that way. I mean, there's a couple simple things that we can find a lot of common ground on that are really actionable. For example, sure. the microbiome is a great lens to look at diet. And we can say that based off of the human microbiome project part two, uh, the people that had the most diverse and resilient microbiota uh, consumed over 30 different types of fruits and vegetables in any given week, whereas the people that had the least diverse gut microbiota uh, consumed less than 10. And so, you know, very, very simple stuff, which is like, well, maybe for people sure. that are creatures of habit, don't eat blueberries every day Maybe for, for breakfast, maybe try to switch it up a little bit because you get different phytonutrients. And so, again, I don't think that's like going to blow anybody's mind, but these small- No, it isn't, but they're- yeah, they're fundamental building blocks that are relatively simple to understand and to study, which is just like, it's like the Michael Pollan thing, right? Which is when everyone's like, oh, you've written all these books and all this stuff. And what's his great advice? It's like, uh, eat, eat, it's, what is it? It's like, eat food, mostly plants, not too much. Yeah. And it's exactly. like, yeah, if, if we have to like boil this fucking thing down, like, fine, let's do it that way. Of course, it's just like, eat more, eat real food and more variety. And like, there's the study. Now we can do more more, uh, more specific stuff. Um, Brian, I know you wanted to talk about some of the, the real world, uh, products a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. And Roger, you start, you were talking about it. So yeah, let's just, let's just, uh, talk about that a, a, a little bit more. Um, you know, probiotics and, and prebiotics have made quite a name for themselves over the past, uh, decade or so. And, you know, it's not, not always in a, in a positive sense. Um, I mean, from bottles that are just labeled probiotics to, you know, no one in the general public really having any idea what's in them, uh, much less, you know, what, what strains uh, uh, we should all be looking for and why, um, to, to suspect ingredients from, you know, China, to, to suspect results. And, you know, there's just still so much we don't know. 
about our microbiomes, despite how how much we've learned so far. You know, and we've begun, uh, you know, uh, pulling the thread of this sweater. Uh, you know, and it just seems that there's there's just so much more and more to to unravel, which is super exciting, but also calls into question the appropriateness of health marketing products without firm ground to stand on. Yep. Yeah, I mean, and then there's that great, I mean, I think Ed had a Ed had a great quote in his book, which is also similar to one that my fertility doctor had at one point. I think Ed said, like, there's no such thing as alternative medicine. If it works, it's just called medicine. <laughs> and I remember my when my wife and I were having trouble making kids and, and uh, you know, at some point when you're very desperate, you start to believe old wives' tales and, and alternative things, whatever it takes. And I remember us asking the doctor once, you know, oh, if they say if it's, if you're carrying the, if you're carrying the child high in your belly, it's a boy. If it's low, it's a girl. And he's like, if that was true, it would be called medicine and it's not. Um, and, uh, but, but, you know, that's, kind of what we're always trying to deal with is to get as reputable as we can. And and I think Brian's right, which is just like, there's been, uh, probiotics have, have made themselves some very, some very complicated press over the test last 10 years or so. So I, I think we're just curious, like why, why is now the time to, to take a new product to market? And I guess what, what makes, uh, for example, seeds efforts and products different? Like where's your, where's your product moat when it comes to this? Yeah. So I well just to speak on to the alternative I mean I I I fully agree that you know science can be a a great equalizer and it should be a validating tool if it's medicine it should be just a medicine um it's why we have areas that we bring to, to consumer products to market as well as have to take things through FDA trials to get drug approval so we're really familiar with this kind of you know idea that the research burden must be met to validate the experimental or research questions or projects that that you might be working on. I the you know and and even on a larger note, humans. It, so much of this stuff just goes back to human behavior. It's the desire to believe. It's you know I was reading a an article on uh, why conspiracy theories spread, spread so fast. And it's because if you think about what a conspiracy theory is, well, first of all, it's oftentimes more exciting than the truth, which is a lot more data-driven, boring, and takes a lot longer. So there's Or is it the truth? Or, <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, um, this, uh, that exactly segues into the second, which is the thought leadership that can be earned through provocation by flipping a question, asking it with a s- suggestion that the answer is something different, or you know, using one blind spot in the information to uh, raise doubts about everything else that may not even have those blind spots. I mean, there's so many ways which just the framework of question asking can lend itself to the promotion of conspiracies. And lastly, oh, and yeah. is, and th- from a psych- psychology perspective, this is the one I was most interested in, which was, if you think about the human drive, of course, to feel uh, heard, to feel intelligent, the need to serve uh, our ego, wh- wh- whichever way that might present itself, a conspiracy makes the conspiracy theorist feel as if they have access to some privileged information that only they have stumbled across that the rest of the world is missing without actually having to go do the work to learn or develop or sculpt uh, that position um, that it might be. And so a conspiracy theory can be as outlandish as the belief that, you know, they've stumbled across the source of extraterrestrial life, or it can be as, quote, benign and innocuous as the fact that, you know, coconut oil can 
cure your cancer. Like it's, it's a, it's a, the, and, and everything in between. And so I really think that like kind of, it's really multifactorial what explains the propagation of alternative, quote, alternative facts um, and conspiracies is actually more driven by human behavior than it is by, quote, natural products marketing. I don't think the coconut industry, oil industry wakes up every day and they're like, absolutely, we're going to corner the cancer market. It's just, you know, kind of a, a, a weird phenomenon that's also based on the fact that the overall level of, of scientific education for most people in our country is quite low. Mm-hmm. And so with sure. that, I'll, I'll answer your question about probiotics, which is I actually really hesitate to uh, use the term as, uh, you know, in, in using the term, you kind of lend credence to everything on the market that has positioned or marketed itself as, quote, probiotic. Um, sure. There's really, you know, kind of the, the birth of the industry was in, you know, the 80s and 90s, some people that worked in uh, fermentation and in, in, in food, in fermented foods. So yogurts and cheeses and, you know, uh, fer- fermented teas and so forth, they started to find um, really scalable processes for uh, growing and and at very high yield these bacteria, and they thought, well, uh, you know, we can just deliver them directly these lactic acid producing bacteria rather than um, in food format at much higher dosages, and that's kind of where, like, from an, uh, the the unscientific side of I would say probiotics began actually well before we even knew about the microbiome in the way that we know today. So there's kind of that like baggage, I should say, of an industry Mm -hmm. which was birthed as a result of the food industry well before um, microbial sciences. And then you'd say kind of the other side of it is the human microbiome research, which says, well, what if we can like isolate human-derived bacteria that have very unique functions and then see if they can be given back to humans to improve health in some way, right? And so- That's what answers the question question about timing is that a lot of our research was very kind of clinical and mechanistically driven, which is um, actually has very little to do with how good an organism is at fermenting something Um, and -hmm. and actually more of the pedigree of the organism, where and how it was isolated, what the mechanism of action is, whether there's been when you give it back to humans and screen it against a placebo, whether you can get a signal compared to a direct uh, a placebo in a direct interventional trial, these are kind of more of I should say uh, the research questions that we really try to answer. And so, sure. Sure. our our research mode is that you know we kind of went back to the birth of the the scientific side of the term. Our chief mm-hmm. science, our chief scientist chaired the United Nations and World Health Organization panel that authored the definition of probiotics in 2001, which actually uh, has a very heavy emphasis on validating that an organism has a benefit in humans or in their host uh, before it can qualify as a probiotic. And um, actually, uh, him and I published a paper last year in Frontiers of Microbiology, which outlined the strict requirements that something must, a strain must meet. Uh, before it can technically be considered a probiotic, mm-hmm. so I bring all that up to say, which is, sure, sure. You know, it's hard to to throw the, it's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. In this case, it's put the baby in with everybody else's bathwater. Um, right, right. And 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 I don't think that just you know to get definition straight, that's um that's it's a very important distinction to have up front. But then in terms of what's the scientific mode, I mean, look like we're doing, we have done or are doing randomized controlled interventional human clinical trials on our product in a wide range of applications, blinding ourselves 
blinding the researchers, and most importantly, blinding the bioinformaticians, the people that are looking and analyzing the data afterwards to what was the intervention and what was the control. And we're doing that at institutions like Harvard for IBS. We're doing that in Canada at the moment for antibiotics. We're designing, you know, a, a huge series of, of research questions and experiments that start to answer very specific questions about why this cocktail of bacteria could be good for you. Um, and, and, you know, we really just don't see other companies that have or are putting as much of an emphasis on this type of traditional life sciences approach and then publishing that type of data to peer review. And so from our approach, at least I would say that's what makes us, you know, from, from the people that are involved to how we think about validating and doing the sure. science, I, I would say it, it, it's a fun, it's, it's a, it's a completely different approach, but, um, you know, it's, it, I, I can't in good conscience back up or support kind of quote the larger probiotics industry at large, because, um, I think that it is unregulated. There's a lot of fast and loose research anecdotally people say that some some things really seem to help them if they do i would say that it's kind of an a, a, a glorious accident where uh those sure or the placebo effect which is real yeah uh but it just seems it seems like it's it's just crazy when you hear people go to legitimate very good doctors who maybe they're having some ibs or whatever it might be uh or or they're you know ecosystem has just been demolished by taking antibiotics a couple times in six months for a sinus infection or whatever and have them say like okay well you know try to eat a wider variety of fermented foods and take a probiotic and you're like but that like doesn't that doesn't <laughs> that does nothing for anybody yeah well um and, and, and so is that is that i guess the value behind your your cocktail of all the different strains if you just want to take a minute and talk about just sort of the product itself like what yeah, the consumers yeah. are buying yeah so we, we do, we have 24 strains that we've assembled together and, and actually it's, it would not really be possible to deliver this in any other way other than what's called uh, lyophilization. So you take the strains, the, you culture up each bacteria individually, and then you sublimate it. So you, the water uh, leaves it and puts it in this kind of state of suspended animation. And then when it comes back in contact with water, they become rehydrated and become uh, metabolically active. So in food, for example, people have this perception that like, well, I don't want to take a pill. Um, I'll just get my bacteria from food. But bacteria in a fermented food are all in this state of metabolic activity. And so they're kind of like competing for nutrients with one another. They can only persist for so long before the energy source runs out. And so really, if you want to assemble what's called a uh, consortia or a, a complex consortia, really, you have to put them all together and, and assemble them in this way, which is what we've done. And, you know, I'm hesitant to say that this is going to work on IBS because to go back to your example, until, until that data, we're, we're in the middle of a trial right now that's, that's assessing this against a placebo. And then we can answer that question with research very directly. But but IBS is a, is a really poorly defined condition. Actually, um, placebo works 30 to 40% of the time in IBS trials. So, and that's actually better than most drugs. Damn. Right? Right. And so... The placebo, th the placebo science is like an entire other conversation I want to have. It's just, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. And, and, and it, there's nothing worse than an IBS. So actually, we had to design what's called a placebo run-in. So for a week, we give everybody something and, and don't tell them and look at their data and we give we give everybody a placebo for a week and the ones that report like they're getting dramatically better um we then don't ex include them in the trial so it's called a placebo run-in it's a very like 
um, scientific method to isolate um, out the pe- those kind of people that are the absolute worst to include in a trial because they they just make your statistics so uh, impossible to read, right? Because they're they're saying that there's this huge benefit without actually having it, so you don't get a clean read. But anyways, like the the again with this first product, we kind of wanted to say, well, look, like there has to be better science here. And so one of the first technologies that we employed in screening and validating different organisms was a technology that came from the genetic school at Harvard. And it was, uh, again, this is kind of a very, very technical, um, but at a high level, it looks at a transcription factor in the gut called NRF2, which is involved in the gut's response to, you know, effective uh detoxification, not in a, in a natural or pseudoscience way, but the actual act of uh, processing, handling, and removing uh, toxicants from the body. And so this, this is a really good uh, transcription pathway as a hallmark of like which organisms engage uh, the host, right? Which organisms engage pathways in the host instead of just, you know, go in there, produce a little bit of lactic acid, and then just pass right out. We used this, we screened it, we got a great hit, we built our our, our consortia and cocktail using this technology, Um, and then the strains that we screened in that process that we used to build our strain bank, our strain library, um, carried this large pedigree of human clinical data, and primarily from northern Italy. That's where all of our fermentation happens, and that's because um, in northern Italy, they the... uh, for, for biofermentation and isolation of microbes or probiotics never kind of became like a consumer industry or a, as a food industry the way that it is in the States. It always was just this like very close discipline between fermentation uh, facilities and uh, hospitals and clinics. And so a lot of the hospitals and doctor's offices, a lot of these clinical trials were run in collaboration right out of the gate. And so, you know, but but again, I think one of the things that makes it interesting is kind of the fact that there is this level of publication on on these strains, right? So, um, a cocktail of strains that signal to the gut skin axis that's in our co- in our consortia was published in JAMA Dermatology. JAMA is one of the top uh, medical journals in the world. You know, uh, a lot of these experiments were designed, validated, hit up against the placebo, and then um, analyzed and published afterwards. And look, that's not to say that everybody's going to be a, a perfect responder. I mean, we even know that in some of the best, like quote drug cases, you have responders and you have non-responders. But what that does is it starts to tease out where a real signal is based on a product versus what's more likely to just be um, chance or a response to placebo. Sure. Well, uh, you know, again, certainly appreciate the, the, broad, the broad scope of your investigation into, into the microbiome and, and these bacteria and, and how they interact, which is just, again, so key and and it is the the like I mean I think a big key from from this uh, conversation and and is like one of my life's missions is just like ask better questions yeah. whether it's yes. whether it's uh, someone conducting the science experiments or as a journalist or as a politician if you don't understand it and and this is what we try to do so hard here is establish context so people can take action because. Action is great, but action without context is kind of what can get us in trouble or just is an innocent wasted effort or money or bandwidth or whatever it might be. But asking better questions, uh, point, pointed uh, action-oriented questions, I think will enable these things to go further. And, and in doing so, in considering the broader systems and the broader levers, uh, will will take us further. I, I don't want to... We, we had some... When I mentioned this to a bunch of people, they... Th- 
I want to make sure we don't miss antibiotics here. So if we could just spend, before we get to the action steps, just a, a brief cl clarifier, like an antibiotics are not uh, uh, the, the bad guy here, right? Uh, it's just that we've used huge numbers and combinations of these things to, for sure, like, markedly improve human life and lifespan. This is one of the, you know, the bullshit things about the paleo diet is everyone's like, oh, it's the way we used to be. It's like, yeah, but life expectancy was like 33. Um, so there are a huge reason why, for example, World War II was so different from World War I, right? But they are, in effect, many of them, uh, carpet bombs, right? They've gotten the job done and, and, and they get rid of whatever might have been making us sick, but they do a huge amount of collateral damage. Um, and... And the problem is the bacteria in our bodies are so ancient and smart and they adapt so quickly and efficiently to these weapons that we're effectively running out in a lot of ways, even for innocent things like strep throat, effective antibiotics, right? There's entire diseases that don't respond to them anymore. I'm just curious if, if, and I know this isn't exactly, you know, where, where we were going, but just for a moment, if, you know, you could talk about, and again, none of us are medical doctors here, but do you foresee any future where we f figure out how to use fewer of these things? It's just, we are having had some private conversations with some of the people that are working, uh, the scientists are working very hard on these things or are looking for new antibiotics in caves or in the bottom of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're, they're very worried. And I'm just curious from your perspective, having worked on it again, if you could just, just take a moment and, and think about this with me. I'm, I'm really, really nervous about, um, antibiotics losing their efficacy so and and it's a love-hate relationship it's you know i i think that they're one of the greatest advancements in medicine um it's it's absolutely a tool which would never have been possible for an entire range of conditions that would have killed you in a very short period of time prior to their discovery so their mechanism actually is 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 quite varied and when people talk about antibiotic resistance, you really have to know, like, there's a, like you said, an evolutionary arms race between uh, bacteria. So actually, most other micro or most micro most antibiotics are derived from compounds that are produced by other microorganisms as part of their arms war, um, and then right. you know against one another. And it's the same way that like our like CRISPR was discovered as a tool by bacteria to uh, chop up viruses, right? So um, sure. you, you, if you look in at that very fine scale level, you find that there's a ton of tools for organisms. Just our, it's a, the reason that we don't have a lot of new antibiotics is because antibiotics are, I mean, and this is, where, this is a great example for people that, that think of that antibiotics are a conspiracy theory by pharmaceutical companies, or, you know, that are, that pharma companies create, create things to, to get rich and, and perpetuate right. illness and stuff. Antibiotics are the absolute worst investment that any for-profit business can ever make because you spend a ton of money discovering them. <laughs> and then the more that you validate it and the more that you use it, the less effective they become. It's, it's the anti-block, right. it's the anti-blockbuster, which is you spend a ton of money to discover it. And then you want to have tons of years of use and sales of that product, but the antibiotics get worse and worse with time. So people stop, the, the more successful your program is, the more you're borrowing future sales. And so really this is a, co a combination of research initiatives, but also um, where public health needs to really step in and say, well, we, this is the, this is the, the point of subsidies. This is the point of research grants is to, to align incentives um, so that people can prioritize the discovery of it. So twofold, I think one, we need to use less 
Um, and the way that we use less is we educate people on what can and cannot benefit from antibiotics. The most recent statistics statistic that I read on this said that about six to seven out of 10 courses of antibiotics are prescribed for a non-bacterial infection. Six out of every yeah, 10 and this people, is like, right? Wow. It's, it's incredible. And this is why, like, again, we are not medical doctors, to be clear, but in talking with so many of them and the scientists behind the antibiotics, their, their gut advice is just always like, if you are in... And look, doctors are amazing. I have plenty in my family. I'm so thankful for them. But but this is almost like their their experience with uh, with with diet related uh, training, which is just just ask: Is does this will this antibiotic actually help the thing I'm dealing with right now? And just ask that question. But they, and the answer might be but, might totally be yes. But they don't know. So here's the here's the other side. Right. Here's the other side. But of I'm the saying like, is- but but the problem is, but, but but my point is just like often they might like. I mean, we we're starting to get the data about how overprescribed this was at the beginning of COVID. Yeah. And it's like, but it's a virus. Yeah. Um, and so just, and of course you want to do whatever you can when, when, when you feel like, when you feel terrible or your life is in danger, fully get it, but we're, we've dug a hole. So, yeah. And, um, and it's, it's, again, these things go back to human behavior. Someone, there's an, there's an expectation of prescription when someone goes to their doctor, because psychologically it feels like even if it's not going to help it, the, the chance that it could, um, is, you know, a, a, it's again, a precautionary principle. The doctor is going to say, if I don't give it to you and I miss it, I'm in big trouble. If I do give it to you and you don't need it, it's a, it's a small cost. And so it's a, it's death by a thousand paper cuts when it comes to resistance is, you know, it's, it, it's really like the risk benefit calculus is stacked up to incentivize the prescription every time. Yeah, it's uh, it's it, I, I I do not know what the answer to this one is, but I'm going to keep trying to think about it and talking to people about it. It is a complicated. Well, believe one. it or not, well, um, the microbiome has uh, and educating people in the microbiome has really helped because now people start to visualize what that cost could be. They don't think of it as you know. If you start to think of this resident community inside of you, which is very beneficial. Um, being challenged by antibiotics. And and certainly since microbiome has become a little bit more mainstream, we've started to also ourselves just notice a a really, you know, change, a, a dramatic change in tune about the frivolous use on the patient side. And so again, I think that, that these things really help, but if we don't have, if we don't solve this problem, I mean, it is a ticking time bomb. If we don't fix this by 2040 or 2050, um, we're going to have a ton of completely a- antibiotic-resistant organisms, and and we're already starting to see it with methicillin, which is kind of like our last, yeah. uh, you know, right. That our was our nuke route. option. Yeah. It, it it's crazy, and I mean, and some of them truly, and this is not to minimize anything, but some of these, you know, diseases um, make COVID look like a, you know, a cold. Yeah. Um, it's there's some scary shit out there. Uh, all right, Brian, take us into uh, our action steps here, so we can get uh, Raja. I mean, this is it's one of the one of the hour. biggest reasons we do this is the action steps. Let's do it. Um, yeah, let, let's get into uh, what we can what we can all do, uh, what all of our listeners can do uh, to to, uh, to with with specific action steps to to help support you and your mission uh, with their voice and their vote and their dollar. So let's start with their with their voice. What are big, actionable, specific questions that all of us? Uh, Raja could be asking of our uh, government representatives to to help support you in your mission. Um, so actually, I'll start with uh, I'll start with ecology, um, and then we can move into the human side of things. So one of our really big projects in Seed Labs is 
um, we are our, our one of our seed labs fellows um, discovered a uh, a bacteria found in the hindgut of the honeybee, which helps the honeybee to uh, detoxify pesticides. And uh, we've now run two field honeybee field trials on this and published on both of them, all of them, both of them in high impact journals and peer reviewed and, and as well as probe the mechanism. Um, this technology or this quote probiotic for honeybees is also in innovation, uh, up for innovation of the year at Time Magazine and Fast Company's World Changing Ideas. And so we're really passionate about our ecological division. And this is the first kind of program that we've announced. And so as as the, the best way to support this is to just familiarize yourself on the role that conventional and traditional agriculture and pesticide use and particularly neonicotinoid pesticides play in their contribution to honeybee colony collapse disorder. Um, and to, with their voice or their vote or their advocacy, at least uh, champion the banning of neonicotinoid pesticides, their use, um, or the rapid and fast adoption of some of these uh, technologies, which can help to have this rescue effect because um, Europe has banned them, but the United States still to date has not. And um, all of our research suggests that these are the, the biggest drivers of um, of uh, death of American honeybees. So um, Apis mellifera is the, is the species of organism. So from an ecological perspective, I would say that's something that we're, we're really passionate about. Um, the second from me. Awesome. Yeah. Do you know any specific, sorry, any specific organizations that are, they're working, uh, in an advocacy way, uh, on that, on that issue? Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also send them to us after. Yeah. Well, we, we have a, we have a big list, which we can share with you. You can put in the show notes afterwards. Awesome. Um, That'd be great. For, for, for sure. And, and even more, I mean, I think just like kind of the, you know, this awareness that, uh, you know, these are these, if we lose the honeybee, we're going to lose a lot of crop Real a bad. lot of crops i mean the amount of crops that are you know I, I was pretty blown away when i found out that almonds uh actually almond farmers have to rent honeybees uh seasonally to come and do their pollination um because there's not enough bees there's a whole there's a burgeoning bee rental industry which actually i'm quite supportive of because um it's a it's a form of you know uh, maintaining and keeping uh, communities and stock of communities alive past the critical collapse if, if wild-type bees might not be flourishing in a particular area. Um, but yeah, there's mm-hmm. there's an entire honeybee, honeybee rental rental industry. <laughs> would it be, would it, um, yeah, would we, it be yeah. ex, uh, exploitive? Is that a word, exploitive, to rent them out for just like pranks on friends? Uh, that, Brian, that's not... Yeah. Is it different? I, yeah. I mean, I, I think that would perpetuate the myth that bees are dangerous. And so, I, I, you know, I would, I would, if I were, if I were you and wanted to prank your friends, I would just prank them and take them to an almond farm between uh, February and August. That does and seem could, better, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, it sounds lovely until it's not. Yeah. Um, awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's super great. Yeah, if you could send us that list, um, that yeah. would be, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Um, we're and, always interested in, and, in uh, and, and then, and then in terms of our, you know, our, we take a pretty big, uh, bet on, on education. And we think that if you can make these issues that we work with less esoteric and more mainstream, um, that it will have a huge ripple effect on, uh, on, on either industries, but also, you know, which type of research gets funded versus which type of research does not. And so two more calls to action. The first is that we have a resource library on seed.com where we cover everything from, um, the, from the evolution of microbes from the beginning of time 
to uh, how, how my, your microbiome works, to the role of microbiome in diet. And we've kind of handpicked and selected a couple publications, which we think um, do a pretty good job of of being integrous to the science. And so that's always a call. A more educated uh, citizen or customer is uh, kind of the, the best way to start. And so uh, yeah, that's, that's, really the cool. first, that's the first place I would point everybody to is if you want to just learn a little bit more about some of these topics in a, in a deeper way. Um, to just go and read and immerse yourself in this field, go find all these, you know, uh, uncover this stuff. We try to break it down in a way that's also not too technical or too dense, um, but that also is a service to the basic science rather than so far removed from the basic science that it starts to sound like uh, product marketing or anything like that. So, um, sure. so that's the, the 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 first one. And then uh, for for women listeners, I would um, I would point them to our recently announced and launched a uh, women's health company called Luca Biologics. And it's just Luca, L-U-C-A dot bio. And you can go there and read about the vaginal microbiome. You can learn about the role of, of microbes in women's health. Um, you know, it's, we've, I've done a lot of uh, interviews with this as well as our, our, our founding team for this company has on how women's health is typically and historically underfunded and uh, you know, dismissed by by both VC, but also by pharma because the market's not big enough or it's non-life-threatening or they're dismissed as symptoms or um, you can't charge a premium for the treatments. I mean, whatever the indication might be, um, I think that it's just kind of, it, it's a field that's, that's worthy and deserving of, uh, you know, kind of world-class science. And so you can learn a little bit more about what we're doing there. Um, of course, it's going to be a couple of years before these these technologies make their way through FDA trials, but it's a really good place to start and and to start to at least start to separate fact from fiction in terms of um, those alternative medicines that are are being presented as helping and 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 women that have uh, recurrent infections are really desperate because there's no other alternative than these kind of uh, sure. antibiotic cycles. And so, um, although there isn't anything today. Um, starting to learn about ecology and risk factors and behavioral contributions can, um, uh, again, contribute to that education. And so uh, just I would, I would like to keep it really simple and just kind of let those be the, the action items so people can, people can, um, can go do it. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, that's the, we, we always appreciate simplicity. I appreciate you. Uh, uh, appreciate you getting specific with that stuff. Awesome. So, hey, Raja, last couple questions and we'll get you out of here. Uh, a little more uh, philosophical. Um, this has been awesome, by the way. I just want to say that. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for thank all you of your time and, and consideration. I feel like we could just uh, talk for an hour and hours, which, you know, eventually people would just turn us <laughs> off, but I'm happy to keep going at any point. Uh, Raja, when was the first time in your life uh, when you realized you had the power of change or the power to do something meaningful? Oh, gosh. You know, maybe not. Maybe it's not the first, but certainly, yeah, you know, I mean, I would probably say that it, it started very, very simple and actually quite young for me. My, my grandmother lives in um, a very small town at the base of the Himalayan mountains and growing up every other summer. Or so I got the opportunity to go in and but you know, before a lot of these areas became industrialized and developed, uh, to just go spend time and and observe how uh, humans can coexist with with animals um, mm. or coexist with nature in a way that's not uh, immediately self-serving, and um, probably, I mean, in in her own small way, um, you know, like 
what is it? it's 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 wild stray dogs and monkeys and parrots and I mean you name it. There's all kinds of animals which you don't really have much food or don't starve. And actually, there's in in northern India and India in general, um, food insecurity is a really big problem. And so um, I, I even remember at the ages of like you know as young as four or five years old, every morning I would go with my grandmother and and we before we ate breakfast we would go. Uh, feed those that were a little bit less fortunate, and and it's not, again, it's not something on a very grand level, but just kind of this idea that like what you can do in your individual life is is and can be enough, or at least is a great place to start. I mean, you don't have to change the world to uh, change sure. the world, so to speak. Is probably I would say that the the first thing that comes to mind is just you know the, the power of small actions that compound. Um, and I'd go back and I'd see, see, see these, these same, you know, street dogs and monkeys, every single, like I, I, I'm telling you, it's a, it's a pretty dynamic ecosystem, or at least it was at that time, um, yeah. every year, every other year. And so, um, my takeaway from that would probably be, uh, you know, don't beat yourself up if you're, you know, you don't have to, you know, invent clean energy to feel like you're making a contribution, really simple kind of, uh, moments of, of humanity can actually, uh, compound in a, in a good way. I love that, man. Um, yeah, we've gotten some pretty, pretty touching things from people and, and they usually are quite simple. Um, and, and it's nice cause those things eventually snowball into, uh, into bigger actions. Uh, Raja, who is someone in your life that's positively impacted your work in the past six months? With that one, I'm probably going to have to say, I mean, I can kick a rock and at any member of our scientific advisory board and say that they're, they're pretty, pivotal to most of the research or work that we do on a day-to-day basis. I'll probably pick the the researcher at Caltech, the professor at Caltech that we're building this company with right now, uh, Dr. Masmanian, mm-hmm. who I've, at least in the last six months I've been working quite closely with in building these, uh, you know, this immuno, immuno-oncology um, microbial sciences company with. It's, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a radical idea about about how we can leverage the microbiome to make cancer drugs work better, though it's still kind of in the for, in the formative phases of getting off the ground. At least in the la- last six months, I would say it's an area I've spent a significant period of time and been and been very fortunate to work with the best scientists in, in the world in this area. And so, um, I would probably say uh, that or Dr. Ravel, who uh, is is my co-founder in the in our in our women's health company. Awesome. Um, we believe in paying it forward. So appreciate that. Oh yeah. It's always nice to get a unexpected shout out. Uh, take us home, Brian. Raja, what do you do when you feel overwhelmed? Self-care. What is your Raja time? So I've really come to appreciate things that break the wheel, so to speak, um, of your of rumination. And so it, I, I think that over being stressed or overwhelmed is a huge product of unresolved thoughts that are just continuing to percolate around without structure and not to say rather than just kind of force resolution artificially onto those thoughts sometimes they need to kind of bask in that purgatory i try to do things that just shut shut it off altogether for as brief of a period of time as i can and so i found things like mountain running swimming in the ocean even even something as simple as just like holding a plank until you collapse like Really simple things sure. that just like divert divert that like that monkey mind. 
um, mm-hmm. at least temporarily, they do give you like a bit of a reprieve from from that rumination chamber, if you will. So that's that th- those I, th- that's the type of thing that I like to do um, is to actually go in the opposite direction and just try to shut the whole thing down altogether. Do like a hard reset for a short period of time, if you will. And another thing, which is actually like I, it's so like given how pervasive technology is, it it it, it and 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 how I grew up. Um, with literature, it, it even now sounds like bizarre to say this, but like picking up a hard copy of a book and not starting at the beginning, but just turning to some random page and, uh, and just starting to read. And, you know, it's, it's, I think that the most of the reason people don't read books anymore is because we put all this pressure on ourselves to like read, start, finish what you started or do this or do that. And I think it's ridiculous. I think that just jump in, just get in there, vary it up expose yourself to constantly to new ideas, make sure that your perspective is never out of focus because you're too deep into one area that you lose the larger picture. And just that, that type of, um, uh, spontaneous immersion as, as I call it, but I'm sure other people have called it that, or or, or someone else might've called it something of the sort as well before really helps. And then, and then my last answer is like, it's like, it's a little bit of a, of, a of hard knocks, uh, you know, tough medicine, if you will, but it's just like, literally just stop thinking about yourself. Like just don't think about you or anything that you are doing. And you can do that in like simple ways by like gardening, or you can do that in more extreme ways about like going and giving back and like doing things of service to other, to, to, to other people or other humanity. But damn, like the amount of time people spend just like self-absorbed about themselves and their own like tiny little life and their own like future. And it's just, it's, it's ridiculous. Like just stop, just actually just stop thinking about yourself as the protagonist in the entire scheme of things that are happening in real time around us. And and whatever technique you need to use to do that, I think that really helps. And like most of the time my stress just goes away quite quickly when I do that. Uh, Yeah. I have found meditation to be extremely helpful in that respect is for, and less like, you know, stop being selfish and more just like, uh, creating a disassociation between what is going on and, and taking it personally. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, then that starts to apply itself to so many different things and, and we just need, uh, we need more folks to hopefully try to find a way of, of doing that, whether it's not doing the doom scrolling and thinking it's affecting me, it all comes back to sort of the stoic philosophy of just like, look, affect what you can and you got to let go of everything else, um, you know, for your own health and for everybody else's. Yeah. It'll all be much or- more, We'll be much more productive. If you want to pull, if you want to pull stoicism into it, like just sleep on the floor for two nights and just see how all of a sudden you start to appreciate like very simple stuff or like, you know, take cold, take cold showers, like literally very simple things that just break the wheel and and give you a chance to start over again. It's, it's, I I think that the industry, the the self-help industry has like uh, made it seem that to be happy, you have to be Confucius. Right. And uh, there's little, little levers you can pull all day. Yeah. Awesome. Brian, last one. Raja, we've got an awesome list of book recommendations from all of our, our past guests uh, on, on Bookshop. So our question to everyone at the end of these, if you could send one book to Donald Trump, what book would it be? Oh, gosh, that's a fantastic... I mean, I would probably... Uh, oh, gosh, to Donald Trump. I mean, can he read? Like, this is... We're yeah, not sure. that's the, that's we the standard that. clause that everybody asks. Imagine it's an audible, uh, an, uh, an audio book, or uh, someone reading to him, or it's just pictures. But uh, yeah, you know what's what's basically what's your 
what's your book to help somebody become a better human in 2020? So, better human, better leader. So I would probably, so I'm, I'm going to make an assumption. If, if I'm not going to answer the question of what I think he would read or if he would be able to benefit from it, I'll answer the question of if I could impart anything into his mind through a book, assuming that it absorbs and goes through, I'd probably send him something along the lines of um, the history of Western civilization or Western thought, like a good, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of a large scope history context book, because um, America is a very young country and doesn't have a lot of its, a lot of its own history and culture. And sure. I find that for people that get really wrapped up in, you know, issues of the self or, you know, the day-to-day of ego or posturing um, or, you know, even kind of like uh, dressing up self-interest in the greater good or, or population, I think that when you take a long view of things, it kind of uh, helps sober you a little bit. So um, sure. I would uh, recommend anything from my the history section of my bookshelf that tries to take a, a little bit of a longer a little bit of a longer view on the birth of civilization and let's see what else uh by the by the way the the very quick version of that um is um uh the lessons of history yeah have you ever looked at that yeah. uh it's super short because um um uh the the couple the durants their their other editions are like 15 volumes but the lessons of history will set you right very quickly and it's like 100 pages or something amazing like that yeah, so so I would definitely go for something like that, and then um, I do want to also add probably a book on on character, you know. So there's there's a couple things like that, but just to keep it focused, I'll go with Deep Work by Cal Newport. Uh, One of my favorites. Yeah, I think that that would that would really help him out a little bit. Awesome. Um, yeah. D- deep Work is one of those. Oh man, it's so good. You're just sitting there reading, going, I, I got to turn everything off. This is crazy. It's uh, it's fantastic because if you ever have been in the space where you are accomplishing deep work, it is addicting and fantastic that the, the flow as they call it. And, um, you, you know, setting yourself up for success to find that is, is, is just hugely helpful. One of the best things you can do. Uh, well, Raja, this has been uh, super helpful, man. Where, where can our listeners uh, follow you online? Uh, so if you want to learn more about all things microbiome and, and about seed, then just check out at seed on Instagram. If you want to learn about, uh, my personal Instagram is just, uh, evolutionary biology. I, I post these pictures and explain deep scientific concepts. Try, and I try to do it simply. It's, it's at, at wild Raja. Um, cool. and, uh, yeah, I would say those are probably the, the two places to visually and intellectually go engage. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for your time and your deep and, and broad uh, thinking on this stuff and uh, for, for trying to help, you know, fix us from the inside out. Uh, there's so much to learn, but uh, it, it's really going to be a pretty amazing 10 years, I think. I'm yeah, I, I appreciate the questions and I also appreciate the mission you guys have. So um, hats off to you guys as well for, for bringing substance to the airwaves and um, <laughs> talk soon. All right. Awesome. All right, Roger. Thanks take so much, care, man. Brother. Thanks, guys. Thanks to our incredible guest today, and thanks to all of you for tuning in. 
We hope this episode has made your commute or awesome workout or dishwashing or fucking dog walking late at night that much more pleasant. As a reminder, please subscribe to our free email newsletter at importantnotimportant.com. It is all the news most vital to our survival as a species. And you can follow us all over the internet. You can find us on Twitter at importantnotimp. Just so weird. Also on Facebook and Instagram at Important Not Important, Pinterest and Tumblr, the same thing. So check us out, follow us, share us, like us, you know the deal. And please subscribe to our show wherever you listen to things like this. And if you're really fucking awesome, rate us on Apple Podcasts. Keep the lights on. Thanks. Please. <laughs> and you can find the show notes from today right in your little podcast player and at our website, importantnotimportant.com. Thanks to the very awesome Tim Blaine for our jamming music, to all of you for listening, and finally, most importantly, to our moms for making us. Have a great day. Thanks, guys. Thanks.